is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we like sending our team out on the road to capture your stories, the American people's stories. Our young faith has been going to the villages, the largest retirement community in the country. Jesse's frequently exploring the musical havens that bring so much of the great music that we all love to our airwaves and to our iPods and iPads. And Alex, well, you never know where he's going. Here's his report that he brings us today amidst downpouring rain and a howling wind that you'll hear in the background. It's May 4th, 2017, and it is 4.45 in the morning. I'm in St. Louis, and I was here for other business, and I read an article about this clinic that opens up at 5.15 in the morning and how people line up at 5 a.m. in order to get into this clinic. What are they lining up for? They're lining up for medicine and therapy that helps them overcome their opioid addiction, painkillers, heroin. And I was just so moved by this story, the fact that there's 30 people out here at this time of morning in order to turn their life around. And why this clinic opens up at this time is so that all these people can go to work. Not all of them are working, but there's most of them are working. I don't know if anyone will want to talk to me. I necessarily wouldn't want to talk about my own struggles, but by sharing each other's stories, we can hopefully help one another. Here's my first interview with a gentleman who asked not to be identified. He looks about 30 to 35 years old. So it's, it's almost 5 a.m. right now, and you're, you're out here, and it's, it's an awful day in terms of the rain, too. How often are you here? Oh, we can't every day unless, unless somebody moves up or, um, you know, a lot of people have, they'll get weekly takes or yeah. weekend takes, and then they'll be able not have to come every week like people with jobs like me. And by takes, he means getting a dosage of the withdrawal drug methadone. And it may seem weird to treat an addiction to one drug by giving someone another drug, but for a ton of people like this gentleman, it, it really works for them. And what methadone essentially does is it stimulates opioid receptors in the brain and thereby limits the urge to use opioids like heroin. So did you start getting daily takes and now they've allowed you to do a weekly here? Yeah, once, well, how it works is you get daily and then uh, if all your drops are yeah. clean for so many months and you're going to your groups and stuff. They have their uh, groups inside. They have them... Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When you're coming here, it's, you know, you might still use the first week or two when yeah. you're coming, you know, until you get leveled yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And then everything, everything's great after that, you know, I mean, as long as you do it right. There's ways you can abuse it, there's ways you can do it right. And how many people here would you say is it heroin or versus, you know, painkillers? Oh, it's about 50-50 there. Okay. People come up here, like, that's how I started. You know, one day I needed painkillers to really? get painkillers at the hospital for, uh, for a, a certain incident I had in regard, regarding my health, yeah, and that's how I got started. Most people, I would say, I would say eighty percent of people get started, just in my opinion, yeah. using, um, you know, uh, pain meds, and uh, so, and then they end up here. They, you know, they don't have them. They don't have the knowledge, and they like, like me, I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't realize if I 
abuse them in any way, I would start getting ungodly sick, you know what I mean? And then end up um, having a friend come up to me and basically say, hey, try this. And automatically makes you feel better and then you're hooked. Just like that. Just like that. And the one thing that really hurts is hurts to see is, you see, now you're starting to see younger and younger people come up here. I mean, there's people that have to have their parents. Yeah, that's all right. They have to have their parents. Um, I just want to finish real quick because I don't want to be rude, but um, they have their parents and stuff come up here with them. Anybody underage or anything, they have to have their parents' approval. So, and That's I mean, tough. what parent? Yeah, but yeah. it's it's a lot better than you know your kids out on the street. Yeah. You know, are you concerned about withdrawing from methadone or? I'm re- I'm withdrawing now. I, I'll be off of it by the end of the year. Oh wow! I'm, am I concerned about it? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm for no. I, I don't think I'll ever use it again. No, okay. I don't think I'll ever wreck that. Line. I never would have if I would have never taken methadone to stopping. You're not. You're not. No, that. I'm. I'm. What I'm going to do? It's a program. I'm not going to go into it. It's a little. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a certain program yeah. that they provide. Yep. Um, not going to go into that, but they provide it, and um, it makes it easier for you. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. And. Um, is this the only the place like it. this that opens so no. early in the morning? No. The, no there's a couple there. There's um, another one uh, right off of Dunn Road. Actually, my brother goes to it. Okay. Yeah. My brother goes to that one. And, um, yeah, everything started going bad for our family pretty much in 06 when a tragedy happened in the family. And uh, my mom's also been up here because, okay. you know, that's that's kind of grip it takes on you when, you're, when yeah. you have it around people that have an addict um what would you call it? Um, a problem with yeah. um, being an addict. Yeah. Or having, now? Oh, she's off of it. She's been, you know, when I get sick, I'm a big baby. And most men are. And, and it's the women that are more mentally tough. I don't know if it's from going through birth or what, but it, it seems that way. But I see you're wearing a cross. Uh, does your faith help you get through this at all? Oh, yeah. 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 I Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you got to have faith. You yeah. don't. I mean, where else are you going to turn? Yeah. I, I've never been homeless or anything. Yeah. Thank God. You know, Did you have a, had, a real low point in a certain. Oh point? yeah, yeah. Whenever, it, when, it, whenever it came to my son, that's when it got bad. When okay. I wasn't seeing my son, and uh, I'm still. Did his mom prevent of, you from seeing him? Did she didn't prevent me? It yeah. was because all I was focused on was where I would get my next. Okay. You know, basically my next fix. You know, but so at least you had the foresight though not to be around him. And, Right, I, I wouldn't have it around him. I wouldn't have it. So that missing him, you know, that's what led me here. Missing yeah. him, um, doing I wanted to do right by him because I grew up with a dad that I couldn't look up to. He seems like he's an alcoholic. Couldn't look up to him. Well, after these short messages, more of Alex's report from the opioid treatment clinic that opens up at five fifteen, so that addicted folks can get help and make it to work. And what inspiring people. What a what a what a courageous guy to just share that with a with a random stranger actually with a microphone to be that committed to healing too and for the right reasons for his family for his boy more with Alex his story these folks story at this opioid clinic here on our American stories
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's reporting from an opioid treatment clinic in St. Louis. When we left off, the anonymous gentleman Alex was speaking with was telling him about the lowest point of his addiction, missing his son, being separated from his son. So that's what led me here was mostly him and oh, myself. Beautiful to be a good example for your yeah, son. I, I, had, I just want him to be able to look up to me. That's why I went to school for something to do with weaponology. Yeah. I'm not going to go into no, it. No, but, no. And I work at another a really good place. And uh, as far as like... Um, that's a cool thing to go to school for, too. Yeah, and I'm gonna, as soon as I get out of here, I can. Uh, that's why I'm working on getting out of here. I should... Sorry, wind's crazy but anyways i'm going to school for the uh for um as soon as i get out of here i'm gonna be going to not to school i'm sorry to the national guard but i gotta be out oh, here great. first yeah yeah so i'm going to the national guard and that helps and the other well, you have to the, disclose that you're using to the guard um i don't know how it works yeah. i've talked to a recruiter but i don't know how exactly how it works with there with that all i know is there's certain guidelines that yeah. they have you have to make I'll be out of here before the year's over, so that's it's, I've been coming. I've been coming here for three and a half years. I was only using for three years. Yeah, I've been coming here for three and a half now. So, but a lot of these people, man, they've been they've been here the, a long time. You know, I'm not gonna name any names, and they're and they're really good people. They really are. They just got trapped up. Most of the guys up there, I mean, you can tell they got to go to work. You know, I'm I'm off today, but most of the guys up there, they're working. Uh, that's why we let. And anybody who is working, like as a as a as a line, we'll let them go in front of us. It's it almost like a little community then. It's like you guys, well, like well, with, saying, the, like with the people totally that's been here for a while, you, you know, if you've been coming here, yeah, yeah, definitely. In the right way, I've yeah. got one of my best friends that I just when I met, you know, three years ago, come here that I could he could ask anything from me, and I can ask anything from him. Yeah, I mean, it's just they they're all really good people. Yeah, I mean, people see us standing in this line, they think, oh, a bunch of junkies. They have no, no idea. Until you go through yeah. it, you don't know it. Until you go through it, until you walk into that, it's like a web. You're walking into that spider web, and you get trapped. And well, it can get anyone. It comes, yeah. it's, it's got oh, rich yeah. people, middle class oh, yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you afford to use when you didn't have a job? Like, where'd you get the money? Oh man, when when you're when you're down and out, it's, uh, when you're down and out like that, when when uh, that's how that's how I, that's why I say when if you haven't been through it, you have no idea what it's like because you will. You will do things you never thought you would do. You would, you, you'll, you'll, you'll just, you'll just hustle, man. You hustle, hustle, hustle. Like here, we come here and we struggle, you know, because with it being, you know, what it is. I mean, it's not much though compared to what we yeah, were. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not much at all. But compared to what we were doing, it was hard to hear with the wind. But what he was saying is that he spent two hundred dollars a day on heroin. And he had to get the money by stealing and doing other things that he didn't really want to get into. Thank God I've never had any charges. I don't have a background. Don't have any felonies. Never did time. So that's all good. That's why I'm able to do things I'm doing. That's why. And, you know, and, you know there's some guys up here do, but I don't judge them. You know, they just fell into a bad cycle of life. You know, yeah. some of them, like I, I come from a broken home, but I won't let that keep me down. And a lot of that has to do with my faith. A lot of that has to do with my son. Yeah. Me, you know, wanting to be a better person. Just in general yeah. you know all that but um besides that though with a ending note because i'm gotta get ready to go in here in a minute um if this place weren't here i don't know where i'd be right now so it is a, it's a really good place you, you know i had no if i if i would have known about this place a year in i would have been here i wouldn't have been on that crap for three years if i'd known about this place no way 
no way I hit my bottom into the year and a half stage. I hit my bottom when I was not seeing my son on a basis. That's the, like I said before, that's that's the part that crushed me the most. I mean, standing here saying it, it chokes me up. You know, that's the part that crushed me the most because it's my only child. Well, you hear it in his voice. And by the way, you're hearing all that wind again and that rain because Alex was out, out in line with a whole group of people. Uh, well, he got out there at 4 in the morning. The, the doors opened at 5.15. And Alex was there because he'd read a story in the local paper, in the St. Louis paper, about this opioid clinic where people were lining up early so they could then go to work. And we track every story here on Our American Stories. And one of the big ones is opioid addiction in this country. And we're looking to find well to find out what the problem is. And then ultimately, we're going to try and track some solutions and park ourselves in a couple of towns that are really struggling and working with this. So follow us on this. But uh, we know somebody, all of us, who's suffering from this. It's not far from all of our families. Alex then continued his reporting before the doors of the clinic opened and everyone ushered in. And I talked to one more person when I was here. He also asked not to be identified. Um, and we could keep talking as long as the doors to the clinic didn't open yet. Of course, I didn't want to get in his way for why he's really here. You don't have to say your job, but what kind of work do you do? I work in a uh, like a factory that makes landscaping blocks. Okay. <laughs> landscaping blocks. Like, what does that mean specifically? Um, it, you ever drive by a building and see a big retaining wall yeah. with blocks? Yeah. That's what we make. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been coming here? Um, a couple years. Okay. And um, it's really changed your life taking methadone, or? Yeah, I don't. I don't use anymore. Okay. I don't use street drugs anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How did it start out? Were you on painkillers, or did you go straight? Yeah, that's how. That's how it started out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that just. You know, it was, uh, I just couldn't get off of them. You know, it just, you just feel sick after you, you know, take them for a legitimate reason for a while. And after six months of that, then you try to wean yourself off of them and you just feel miserable. How long were you using? Um, a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. And any real low points? Oh, sure, sure. I could... I don't know how much time you have. But no, I got time. Yeah, until, until you got time. Like the no, gentleman I was no, just talking I mean, to, not seeing his son. You know, he was just telling me. And, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it gets terrible. You know, because you you can't. The doctors eventually are just gonna say I, I can't write you prescriptions anymore. So you you turn to the street, and, and uh, you know you just have to lower yourself and do some some shady stuff to to get what you need. How much were you spending around a, a day on it at your at your peak? Oh, uh, before I came here, um, you know, sometimes a hundred or two hundred bucks, and not every day. I mean, it couldn't. I couldn't have spent that much every day, but there were plenty of days where I'd use a hundred or two hundred dollars worth. Were you working at that or time? Or more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's another low point. You know, you end up burning two jobs because you. Yeah. You know falling asleep at your desk or whatever <laughs> so um and how how cheap is this compared to to that it's it's, it's a lot cheaper than that yeah it's around yeah. 15 or 17 dollars 17 dollars a day, a day yeah. yeah you know you can't 17 dollars buying something on the street is not going to get you what you need yeah. to, to just even feel normal that that's what it got to it wasn't 
I wasn't trying to get high. I was just trying to feel normal enough yeah. to function, you know, and not feel sick. Like, like I had the damn flu. So that's interesting. That's I, think, I think most to. people, when they you know read about it in the papers, they you know as this last guy was saying, like these junkies in a line, like they they probably think it's people trying to get high, and they don't they don't know that people are just trying to feel normal, as you say. Yeah, yeah. This I taking methadone. I don't I don't have any. I don't feel high. You know, yeah. buzzed or anything. That if you took it without having yeah. a tolerance, you you'd probably fall around on the ground, and you know either pass out or you'd be wasted but I, I don't feel I just feel normal do you have a family yeah yeah I'm, I'm married but I'm separated and okay. I have kids and that my kids finally are aware of the situation yeah. so that sucks but but uh, are they able to overcome I'm, that now not knowing that you're in a good place um it's it's difficult yeah you know it's not it's not ideal well, there's time yeah there's it could, there's still time. Yeah, I, I still talk to him every day. So well, every day is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm busy, but every day they're still talking to you. Right, and I'm working every day now, so it's you know that the low point was I wasn't working, trying to come here and trying to make miracles happen. So um, things are going pretty good now, right? Yeah. So good. I, I'm I'm an advocate of it. You know, I hope these places stay around. Yeah. There's so many too many people dying out there. My understanding is there's not too many places and there's, there's no. not too many doctors who are able to subscribe either. Right, and and a lot of them that do are do irres- do so irresponsibly. Yeah. So, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a good day. You too. And there you have it, Alex's report from an opioid clinic and a treatment center in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where he had been on other business. Read a peep, an article in the paper. Uh, phoned in and said, hey, I need to stay an extra day. I need to do this. I think it would be good material. I I said, let's do it. And there you have it. And we're going to continue to track this story. Uh, An estimated 40,000 people die from opioid overdoses each and every year. And that makes it an official crisis in this country. I think enough people are talking about it now. That's good. We want to hear real-life stories from real-life people, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. Great job on this, Alex, as always. stories and now we bring you a regular feature that we love here on the show radio candy here's jesse if you've ever thought about giving your own ted talk here's will stefan with some advice on how to sound smart hear that that's nothing which is what I, as a speaker at today's conference, have for you all. I have nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Zippo. Nothing smart. Nothing inspirational. Nothing even remotely researched at all. I have absolutely nothing to say whatsoever. 
and yet through my manner of speaking, I will make it seem like I do. Like what I am saying is brilliant. And maybe, just maybe, you will feel like you've learned something. Now, I'm going to get started with the opening. I'm going to make a lot of hand gestures. I'm going to do this with my right hand. I'm going to do this with my left. I'm going to adjust my glasses. And then I'm going to ask you all a question.、Uh, by show of hands, how many of you all have been asked a question before? <laughs> okay, great. I'm seeing some hands. And again, I have nothing here. Now, I'm going to react to that and act like I'm telling you a personal anecdote. Something to break the tension, something to endear myself a little bit, something kind of、uh, embarrassing. <laughs> and you guys are going to make an awe sound. It's true, it really happened. And now I'm going to bring it to a broader point. I'm going to reel you back in. I'm going to make it intellectual. And now I'm going to slow things down a little bit. I'm going to change the tone. I'm going to make it seem like I'm building to a moment. And what if I was? <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? What can you do? Life's a roller coaster. You know, <laughs> if there's one thing you take away from my talk, I'd like you to think about what you heard at the beginning. And I'd like you to think about what you hear now. And now I'm going to stop talking. Thank you. Tommy Edison has been blind since birth. Here he is with some of the most common questions he's frequently asked. I guess one of the things you guys are the most curious about is color. How does it work for me? What is it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> so, being blind since birth, I've never seen color. I don't have any concept of what it is. I mean, I've never seen anything. Right? There's this whole part of vocabulary, of language, that doesn't mean anything to me. Over the years, just people have tried and tried and tried to explain color to me, and I just don't understand it. I think the best way to show you is to try and explain to someone who's never heard before. What the ocean sounds like, or what the birds sound like. And that's where color is for me. Because somebody who's never heard doesn't know what those things are, has no concept, none. And, and people will try and explain a sense with another sense. It's like the way this smells, maybe that's what a particular color. What? So you're going to tell me you're going to explain what color looks like by my nose? That doesn't make any bloody sense at all. So when somebody says something's red to me, I don't quite get it. I know that red is fire or a stoplight is red. Or when someone says you're in the red, you know, that means you're in some trouble, like financial trouble. Again, just stuff that I picked up from hearing about it, but I don't know what it looks like. Blue. Blue is the water is blue. Cold or ice is blue.、Uh, the sky is blue. Now, how can the sky and ice be the same thing? That's weird to me, but it's very, what's that? Same color. Same color means two completely different things. I don't get it. I hear a lot about orange. An or is an orange actually orange? The fruit? I know nothing rhymes with it. There's nothing that rhymes with orange, is there? Way to go, orange. <laughs> Way to be involved in poetry and song. Black. What's black? Black is supposed to be all the colors all smushed together. And then white is the absence of color? So, when I hear black and white, to me they're just opposites, right? Because one has everything and the other has none. And then there are things that don't have color. 
like water. But it doesn't have color, but the ocean does. I don't get that. Color is hard. How do you decide if people keep them all straight? <laughs> I can't even think of anything that's indigo. A car. Right? Is that they always have weird colors for cars. I remember one time, a long time ago, I was buying a car with somebody. And they said, how about Heather Mist? I was like, what? I've never even heard of that. Nothing else in the world is Heather Mist. And now it's time for some uplifting slam poetry from a young man named Rudy Francisco. The following are true stories. May 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking. A boulder fell on his right hand. He waited four days. Then he amputated his own arm with a pocket knife. On New Year's Eve, a woman who was bungee jumping in Zimbabwe, the cord broke. She then fell into a river and had to swim back to land in crocodile-infested waters with a broken collarbone. Claire Champlin was smashed in the face by a five-pound watermelon being propelled by a slingshot. Matthew Brobus was hit by a javelin. David Striegel was punched in the mouth by a kangaroo. (laughs) The most amazing part of these stories is when asked about the experience, they all smiled, shrugged, and said, I guess things could have been worse. So go ahead. Tell me that you're having a bad day. Tell me about the traffic. Tell me about your boss. Tell me about the job you've been trying to quit for the past four years. Tell me the morning is a townhouse burning to the ground. Tell me the snooze button is a fire extinguisher. Tell me the alarm clock stole the keys to your smile, drove it into 7 a.m., and the crash totaled your happiness. Tell me, tell me, tell me how blessed are we to have tragedy so small it can fit on the tips of our tongues. You see, when Evan, you see, when Evan lost his legs, he was speechless. When my cousin was assaulted, she didn't speak for 48 hours. When my uncle was murdered, we had to send out a search party to find my father's voice. Most people, most people, most people have no idea that tragedy and silence have the exact same address. When your day is a museum of disappointments hanging from events that were outside of your control. When you find yourself flailing in an ocean of why is this happening to me. When it feels like your guardian angel put in his two-week notice two months ago and just decided not to tell you. When it feels like God is a babysitter that's always on the phone. When you get punched in the esophagus by a fistful of life. Remember that every year, two million people die of dehydration. So it doesn't matter if the glass is half full or half empty. There's water in the cup. Drink that and stop complaining. You see, muscle... You see, muscle, muscle is created by repeatedly lifting things that have been designed to weigh us down. So when your shoulders feel heavy, stand up straight, lift your chin, hell, call it exercise. Remember that life is a gym membership with a really complicated cancellation policy. Remember that you will survive. Remember, things could be worse. Remember, we are never, ever given anything that we can't handle. When the world crumbles around you, you have to look at the wreckage and then build a new one out of all the pieces that are still here. Remember, you are still here. The human heart beats approximately 4,000 times per hour, and each pulse, each throb, each palpitation is a trophy engraved with the words, you are still alive. You are still alive. Act like it. It's the of sunshine going down. That's the sound of sunshine going down. And this is Radio Candy. Sounds that stimulate the senses on Our American Stories. I wake up in the morning at 6 o'clock. 
They say there may be rain, but the sun is hot. I wish I had some time just to kill today. And I wish I had a dime for every bill I got to pay. Some days you lose, you win, and the water's as high as the times you're in. So I jump back in while I learn to swim. Try to keep my head above it the best I can, that's why. Here I am. Waiting for this storm to pass me by That's the sound of sunshine going down That's the sound of sunshine going down Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Coming up now, the unique story about generosity and our nation's veterans. Sydney Goodfriend had a great career in investment banking, which helps with the buying and selling of companies and also helping companies raise new resources. But it's not like this was something he was just always dreaming about as a kid. I certainly didn't. And it was a real challenge for my parents to be able to send me to college. It wasn't like you belonged to a golf club or anything. I went to business school not knowing really what I wanted to do, but I really found investment banking to be so incredibly challenging. And the more I learned about it, you could almost think of it as like competitive sports, particularly for people who aren't skilled athletes. It's very, very competitive. It can be exceptionally rewarding uh, mentally, and that's separate from financially, uh, to be able to either win a piece of business in a very competitive situation or to convince a client that they hadn't been thinking about what to do with their company and you might help them improve their company by taking a certain action. Uh, I found for me it was the best career out there. It's not for everybody. The hours are really, really long. The travel is really significant. Uh, You have to really love it. But for the people who were in a similar situation than me, it, uh, I couldn't think of a better career. And after 25 years of it, a number of factors led Sydney to a second career, the so-called halftime of his life. I found myself uh, in a position that I could afford to do something different. Uh, my wife also grew up in a modest family, and she was also in Wall Street, and we were just very, very lucky. Second factor was, on 9-11, I was right downstairs watching the second plane go in. And for months and months after that, for many of us in New York, it was just a question of when the next time was going to happen. And so many of us were so worried that over time when things didn't happen, you just kind of, you can become religious, you can, um, there, there are a whole bunch of reasons that, that uh, one can, can look to. Uh, I attribute a good deal of it to the sacrifice of so many in our U.S. military who stepped up after 9-11 to serve. So that was the, the second component. And the third component was I became so appreciative of the opportunities that my country had afforded me. You know, nowadays you could be a middle-class person living in Syria and your life can just be turned upside down due to no fault of your own, or be in Eastern Europe, or be born in a small town in Africa. Uh, but I wasn't. I was born in New York where I could get a good education. 
uh, go to a good college and have opportunity. And if you worked at it, and if you got lucky, um, you might be able to make a good living. And I wanted to do something for my country, but this is my attempt at public service. It's nothing to be, not really bragging about it or anything. It's just, it was my time to do something. And his something came in 2008. American Corporate Partners was launched, of all things, in the middle of the financial crisis. We didn't plan it that way. That's just when the timing came out. So ACP is a veteran mentoring program. It's based on the big brother's big sister's model, except here the little brother might be a 240-pound Marine. What we focus on is something unique that a lot of other people, I'm not sure if they really spend a lot of time thinking about, which is for so many of our returning military, the challenge isn't finding a job. And the unemployment rate in this country is just under 5%. For veterans, generally speaking, it's a little bit better than that. You can find a job reasonably easily, but finding a good job, one that leads to meaningful employment, that's a much greater challenge. And most of the people coming home are coming home telling us they don't know what they want to do when they come home and they leave the military. In terms of numbers, we've had 3.5 million people serve since 9-11 and leave. And even when most people perceive the wars to be generally over, this year alone, it's expected we'll have had 250,000 people leave the military. So we're only helping a small number. But the people who sign up, it's totally free. Uh, it's a one-year, one-on-one, very customized mentoring relationship. We've had more than 10,000 veterans complete our program and said their mentors have changed their lives. Today, we have 2,800 vets in the program. So it's 2,800 vets, 2,800 mentors, totally nationwide. If you remember back to high school, you had those concepts of those Venn's diagrams. Remember those are the circles, you know, sometimes they intersect and you try to figure out, okay, what's the common beyond between the two of them? In our world, those two circles rarely have intersection points. And the intersection of a circle might be a, a person who might run a plant for General Motors, might be a mentor. We also might have a research scientist for Eli Lilly, might be a mentor. We might have a retiree from Johnson & Johnson, might be a mentor. And you compare that network that those people have to the guy who grew up in a small town who decided to join the Marine Corps or the Army, right? So those worlds many times don't have intersections, not too many. And so the value that we provide is not only the mentoring and the advice, but this huge network of opportunity. You know, most of the people in our program have really fast networks they never really think about. And the mentoring isn't that tough. It's an hour a month. And the value that the creation from that is just enormous. You know, certain parts of the country, people don't really think about returning vets. Here in the Northeast, my guess is more people donate to pets than they donate to vets. But there aren't too many places where if you want to thank a person who served, there aren't too many ways other than writing a check to help. And we're unique in that way. We, we do need funding, but generally speaking, what we're looking for is a mentor who's willing to spend a little bit of time or open up his or her network. Uh, and it's mind-boggling what it can open. But here's some stories, because I think that the stories are somewhat representative of the types of people that we're helping. We have one fellow who came to us years ago, and he enlisted after 9-11. He's from a small town in Massachusetts, uh, like one of those that you might see in, like, in a Ben Affleck type of movie. So he joins the Army, and he's fast-tracked in Iraq, and that's when things were going badly. And he finds himself within months being uh, at the bottom of a riot in Baghdad, where he's on a street corner 
wearing his army fatigues and he's getting kicked and beaten and spit upon by a whole bunch of very upset Iraqi citizens. So he's medically discharged from Baghdad. He comes home. He's living on the, in the basement of his folks' house. He's on the sofa. And at the age of 19, he suffers a stroke. Now, this is before traumatic brain injury was really focused on, both by our military and by the medical profession. So here you have a 19-year-old with a stroke. He's right out of high school. He's been medically discharged. His family doesn't really know what to do when he spends seven years in and out of a VA hospital. Sister quits her job to take care of him, and he finds a way to finish college. So he goes to college and finishes college, and he joins our program. And we find him a mentor, and this mentor happens. So the guy's in Boston. The mentor is an IBM mid-level executive in Washington, D.C. And so the two of them don't meet, but they're talking all the time. And the biggest challenge for this young fellow was not figuring out what he wanted to do. He wanted to work in finance. Not really sure where in finance, but he wanted to work in finance. But he needed confidence to go through an interview. He just was not presenting himself to sell himself. And he'd been through so much, and he was so self-aware of public speaking. And he needed six months with his mentor just to be able to be prepared to do an interview. So anyway, long story short is he moves to Nashville. So he says, I'm just going to move in with a buddy. He's going to leave home and start afresh. And he gets his college degree, and his mentor's working with him, and he moves to Nashville. And I introduce him to a person who runs a company. He says, listen, I don't have a uh, position for you here, but let me send out a few emails. And he sends a few emails around, and this fellow gets a job in the finance department of a big company in Nashville. A year later, he's got a multi-million dollar book of business. And a year after that, the CEO is coming up to New York, and he tells this guy, hey, I'm going up on the corporate plane. Why don't you come on up with me? And you can thank those guys at ACP. And so here's a guy that 19 had a stroke, became very, very successful. He never met his mentor. He never met us. He just had a whole bunch of people cheering for him via phone and email. And he became not only a, an important member of his family, but he had, he had his life back. And he had something to be proud about and a real future ahead of him. And these cheerleaders, the corporate partners of ACP, include great American companies like the Home Depot, Lockheed Martin, and so many more folks. And it all started with a kid who never expected to be in the financial industry and industry that the media and the politicians often portray as evil and villainous to its core. You know, I think in most, it's really easy to generalize industries or types of people and just say that they're all good or they're all bad. Like, you know. Inner city people are all this type of person or that type of person or, you know, Republicans or Democrats are all this type. And, and I think it's obviously a lot more nuanced than that. There are quite a number of Wall Street people who have been successful, however you define that, and give back in many different ways. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of jerks, too, but there are plenty of jerks in the, uh, the media industry. And then there are plenty of really good people who really care about things to give back. So, you know, just like generalizing among any type of group is fraught with danger. Yeah. Not everybody on Wall Street's a jerk, <laughs> but are there a few? Uh, there's more than a few. And what a great story. Sydney Goodfriend, the founder of American Corporate Partners, and you can help them by going to acp-usa.org. That's acp-usa.org. 
And by the way, you can help with more than your money. You can help with your time and help with your networks. And by the way, what a great story about free enterprise, about private business, and about a guy who, well, he's done well enough, and now he wants to give back. That happens, by the way, all over this great country. The story's not told enough. What businesses do for this country, besides employing people, they give back. So many business owners, so many really wealthy people plowing their money back for ordinary Americans to just do better and advance their lives. Sydney Goodfriend's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and from time to time, we like to take the pulse of Main Street America, and particularly small businesses in Main Street America, because small businesses are the lifeline and the pulse of America. 55% of all jobs, 55% of all jobs are small business jobs. Two-thirds of all new net jobs are small business jobs. And by the way, just some Interesting facts before we dig into this segment. Since 1990, big businesses have contracted or eliminated 4 million jobs in this country, while small business owners have added 8 million new jobs. And that's why we do this. And by the way, we do it because in the end, we're all pulling for small business owners, and we know them. And that's the local dentist, a good friend of mine, Walker. He has 20-plus employees. That's a small business, that dental office. And the barber shop and the the local bicycle shop, this is what makes America hum, and some of them grow into some pretty big small businesses, and then some of them grow into really big, big businesses. And as always, these hourly reports are brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network, and defendmainstreet.org is where you can go to to find out more about what they do. And so our young interns, Shadrach, Martin, and Colby from Hillsdale College, well, they just got here, and we sent them right on the road. And they're traveling around the country talking to business owners of all stripes. We're learning what got them into their businesses, what their businesses do for their local communities, and ultimately how taxes and regulatory policies affect those businesses and thereby those communities. Here's a small business owner we talked to in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a town of approximately 40,000 people, an emerging college town. It's the home of Southeast Missouri State University. My name's Eric Good, and I own Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We're a bicycle and fitness store, and we've been here since 1978. So why bikes? Uh, I like bikes. I, I rode bikes a lot when I was young, and I started working at a bike shop when I was 15 years old, and I haven't ridden as much since I've worked at a bike shop. I'm 60 now, but we just enjoy it. Uh, it's something we like to do. I, I had a guy today that came from pretty far distance, and he's in a wheelchair. He can't walk, he can't stand, and we got him on a three-wheel recumbent bike, and he's riding. Wow. So that was just, it was just an awesome deal for me today. And you can hear the enthusiasm in this guy's, in this guy's voice. Our team asked Eric, the owner of this shop, about some of the challenges he's facing 
at Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We pretty much see our expenses going up every year, and um, generally our profit margins are decreasing. So it'd be, Why do you it'd think be a, that is? It's just the way, the way of the world. You know, expenses are going to continue to go up, whether it's your insurance or your property taxes continue to climb. And then many of the, uh, if not many, if not most of the manufacturers seem to be cutting margins, and, you know, their profitability just seems to be getting tighter and tighter every year. So yeah. we keep going after it, and fortunately for us, we've got our billing paid for, we've got our inventory paid for, no debt, and so that makes it a lot easier. Uh, but yeah, I just uh, we're going to just keep keep doing it because we enjoy it. Our traveling interns then asked this small business owner from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, what a tax cut would mean for his bicycle shop. Well, it certainly can help. I mean, yeah. there, there's times where, you know, if, if we're going to have a little less of a tax burden, I mean, mm-hmm. we can go out and spend a little more money. I mean, we have situations where, whether it's our local city, mm-hmm. our university is spending money out of the area or out of the state. And frankly, if, you know, I've got less money coming in, we're probably going to spend less money on advertising or for my employees who, who need jobs. So, yeah, I think it's important to do everything we can, try to help the money stay within our local economy, and, and it gets paid on to whether it's the employee, mm-hmm. the guy at the coffee shop, or the guy going to the movie theater, or mm-hmm. the car dealer. And next up, our interns talk to another small business owner in Cape Girardeau, this time in the marketing field. My name is Dana Thomas. I'm the owner of Bold Marketing, and we are a full-service marketing advertising agency in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Growing up, I knew ex- that I definitely wanted to own my own business. There was not a doubt. Um, I just didn't know what. And so I went through the process just thought of all kinds of ideas and knew at some point it would just hit me that it was the right time and the right avenue. And that's kind of what happened. Somehow, by good grace and hard work and a great team, we have grown to where we service clients in 20 states. And now we have a second location in Nashville um, where we're growing that team base there as well. Dana describes her market and then shares a story about the extraordinary measures she took to retain just a single employee. For one, it's the fastest growing market in the country and it's very populated with medical and financial, which is two of the industries that we specialize in. We also had an account manager here that I was training every day for two years to be an account executive. Her husband got transferred to that market and I said, okay, let's not lose you. Let's just open up uh, that satellite office there. And so that's how we chose that location was because she was moving to that market. And that's Nashville, of course. Our team then asked Dana what the biggest expenses were in this marketing firm comprised of 20 employees. Payroll is our biggest expense here just because of the industry that we're in. It's a service industry. And um, I expect a lot of employees and our clients expect even more. And so we have uh, our employees are, are paid well. We also have a lot of media that we place, and so whether it's TV, radio, digital, social media, a big portion of our our revenues go out to media placement. Otherwise, it's your typical government taxes and everything else. We have owned this building, we're building another building, and we have our office in Franklin. When asked what she would do with a tax break, Dana Thomas of Bold Marketing had this to say. Uh, I would do two things. One, I would increase my staff. So I would, I would open up probably two more position, full-time positions with benefits. Um, so it would help that growth opportunity. Um, the other piece is I would invest more in technology. Um, we are developing software right now, and I would probably develop, um, invest in even more software. And by the way, when she said she'd hire two new people, she meant it. And when she said she would invest in technology, she's hiring more people. 
because business-to-business sales mean more jobs. And we love talking about the impact of tax policy only as it relates to you and only in storytelling form, because that's all we do here on Our American Stories. It's stories about your pocketbook, about your family, about your dinner table, your health insurance, your lives. Your lives here on Our American Stories. Our young interns traveling around the country talking to small business owners everywhere here on Our American Stories, Voices of Main Street Project. Our American Stories, and we return to our special Voices of Main Street Hour, where we send our crew around the country, either in person or on the phone, to talk to small businesses about what's going on in their lives. And you know these small business owners, is their friends, their neighbors, and the lifeblood of the American economy. And that's the thing, I don't think most Americans know that 55% of all jobs come from small business, and two-thirds of all new jobs, new net jobs. Those are big numbers, and they're a big part of our economy, and we don't hear from them enough. And that's why we do this Voices of Main Street piece. And we have our intrepid interns, and it's, it's just good fun to send 20-somethings out and find out about real-life consequences of public policy. Some of these young people might be studying government in school. They might be studying something like it, civics. But this is a civics class in action, folks. And so... We return to a place called Handmade Heaven. And by the way, it's a store that makes handmade goods from quilts to cupcakes. They have it all. And the owner is Maggie Bodai. My name is Maggie Bodai. Um, The business is, it's called Handmade Heaven, of course. Everything in here is handmade stuff from local area crafters, bakers, woodworkers, artists, um, everything like that. Uh, We do a consignment basis. I do not charge my people like a monthly or weekly fee. Uh, they, I just make 20% off whatever they sell through here. That helps them and it also helps me. I have no overhead in this business as far as everything you see in here. You know, they bring their stuff in and I just get 20% when it sells. What got you guys into the idea of opening a business? Well, actually, I had three jobs before I opened this place. Um, I think my husband could see that it was kind of wearing on me. So he was like, why don't you just open your own shop? And I was like, there's no way. Like, how are we going to do that? So um, anyway, we just went to the bank. We talked to the owners of this building. Um, Actually, we did not get a, like, business loan 
we didn't do it the conventional way at all. We got $1,300 back for income taxes this year and we refinanced my son's truck and that's what started this place. We are gonna buy the building, but for the first 12 months, we're set up on a lease purchase. So that way, if the business doesn't go well, at the end of that 12 months, we can just, we have the option to walk away or go ahead and purchase the building. So like if somebody could, you know, get somebody to work with them like we did, I mean, pretty much anybody could do this. Anybody. Anybody can do it. And by the way, my mom had a consignment shop, and she gave great supplemental income to our family. And by the way, the women who came in to consign made money too. It was great supplemental income for their families. And I think my mom had at the core about 25 core you know, consigners who made a living for my mom. My mom made a living for them, and it gave my mom meaning and just made her so happy. And when she got a little too old and it was just too hard, the worst thing we ever had to do as a family was close that consignment shop, which, thank goodness, we didn't have to do at the end. An angel came in, one of her customers, and took it over. And here's Maggie explaining why she started this kind of business. And by the way, it's located in a town called Madrid, Missouri. The handmade stuff, I really like it. Like, I've always loved handmade stuff. Um, it's always personal. It's a one-of-a-kind, unique, personal gift. Uh, my daughter and I, we make sugar scrubs and bath bombs and things like that. And we knew how hard it was to be able to sell that stuff. Basically, all you have is like Facebook, word of mouth, or pay to set up at a craft fair or something like that. So we wanted to help other people too. That's why I told my husband, you know, if we start this business, I want to do something that helps not only us, but others around in the area. And this is a great thing because this gives people, so many talented people, a chance to have a storefront to sell their stuff in. I really enjoy helping others. I always have, like I've always been big into charity and stuff. That's why, like I said, when we started this, I really wanted to do something that not only helped me, you know, not have to work three jobs, but you know, help other people around too. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to charge the, the booth fees or anything like a, a regular flea market or something like that would because with that, you know, if they didn't sell anything, then they're just out money and I don't want people to have to go through that. Were you able to draw people into getting their items here in the store? I thought it might be hard actually, but once I, you know, put the word out of what I was doing, I literally have somebody come in either every day or every other day saying, do you have somebody who makes this? I do this, I make that, you know, it's actually easy. They come to me. I don't have to, I don't really have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, this has been great so far. We've been well, very well received by the community. Everybody who comes in loves the place. They love that it's unique and it's different than most shops. Um, I, I don't know where another shop is like this. I think this week will be two months maybe. We opened, we did a soft opening on March 25th and we were open that week and then April 1st we did our grand opening and you know we've been open ever since and like I said we, we have quite a bit of business actually. I really didn't know how it was going to go. You know the first few weeks, well about the first six weeks I was open seven days a week just to see where I needed to be and um, Honestly, nobody comes in before lunch break. So many people work, you know, they have jobs, but lunch break we have people come in and we're pretty much busy until 8 o'clock at night when we close. And that's the sound of small business right there and a brand new baby business, which we just love here on this show. She makes it very clear that she never saw herself as a business owner. I mean, did you see yourself being a business owner growing never, up? Or? No, never. <laughs> I, I came from a very poor family, actually. Um, we lived off welfare, and my dad got, he was an elderly man when I was born. 
and so he got Social Security, and that's basically what my family lived off of. I mean, we would walk and pick up cans to make extra money. My parents would mow yards, paint houses. I never, ever thought that I would be doing this. And we, you know, me and my husband over the years, we've been married for going on 18 years this year. You know, we'd talked about businesses before, but this was never one of them. I, this just literally all fell together in about two weeks time. We found a building that we liked and I like this one. This building was actually built in 1900 and we had to do about four grand worth of work on it. But you know, I worked my extra jobs because like I said, I had three jobs before I did this. And I just worked those for a few extra weeks just to, you know, keep getting money in to go ahead and finish out what we needed to do. Seriously, anybody can do this, anybody. So now owning a business, and this is one of the big things going through the government right now, if, if they lower taxes, on you know businesses, small especially small businesses. Yeah. What would you use that money for? Oh, I'd use it to make my business better. My money that I've been getting through here, like that's for the shop money. You know, of course that's mine because I'm the sole proprietor. But I've been using a lot of it to just buy more things. To I just want to keep improving. I I don't really want to like I said I don't want to get rich. I just I want to keep improving, and I I just want everybody to enjoy the place. And what does Maggie have to say to those who want to start a business? Just do it. Like, just figure out a way. My dad always told me, like, there, where there's a will, there's a way, and that is so true. Like, like I said, we started this with income tax money and refinanced a vehicle. I mean, anybody can do that. Anybody. We, we're not rich people by no means, <laughs> you know. I just, I, I say just go for it. If, you know, there's a way. There's always a way. When my husband, you know, brought this up, I was like, there's, no. <laughs> You know, we, we don't have the money to do this. I don't even know if our credit's good enough to like get a business loan. And you know, the people who own this building, they were willing to do the lease purchase with us for the first 12 months, you know, and that helps so much. So we're, we're really thankful, you know, for that too. But like, if, you know, like I said, if they can find somebody who will help them out, the lease purchase is a great, a great deal. If they can find somebody to help them out with a building, I mean, you got a vehicle and it's paid for or, you know, something like that. Or it, if it's close to income tax, there's your start money right there. You can do anything, seriously. I didn't think that before we started this, but I really believe that now. And that's Maggie Bodai, owner of Handmade Heaven, and she's in Madrid, Missouri. And you can just hear the, the voice of a small business owner eager to grow and eager to, as she said, get better. And in the end, get bigger. And by the way, just a couple of more asides. In 1996, 7.81% of our population owned a small business. And that's down today to 6%. And that's not good. And that's why I think and we think uh, that there are not as many good jobs around today. And a lot of that has to do with tax policy. And again, that's why we're doing this segment. Voices of Main Street, our Hillsdale interns, great job. Shadrach, Martin, and Colby. From Hillsdale College, and uh, they're in Logan, West Virginia today, and we'll have more stories from them. And when we come back from the studio, voices of Main Street, well, you're going to hear from someone in South Florida, a very interesting voice from a part of the country that we're going to get to know a lot better over the coming weeks and months. This is Our American Stories, the Voices of Main Street Project.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our hour, Voices of Main Street, where we cover the lives of small business owners around this country, and we do this from time to time, and it's sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Job Creators Network. Go to DefendMainStreet.org to see all that they do. We love sending our team out to talk to small business owners, get their stories, what they're going through, and what they want to tell you, the country, about their lives. And one of the stories our irrepressible interns from Hillsdale College came up with was one from their own hometown. That is the hometown of their college, Hillsdale, Michigan. The business, the Market House grocery store, the owner, a fourth-generation owner, Brett Boyd. And so our interns talked with Brett and first asked him, What we ask every guest, what was his very first job as a kid? Our supermarket used to be closed on Sunday, and uh, I would go in with my dad on Sunday morning um, and face out the shelves and mop up the aisles and kind of clean up the store. And and at the end of about a four- or five-hour shift, I got an ice cream cone, and uh, I thought that was the greatest thing ever uh, until I got a little bit older and kind of realized I was probably on the wrong side of... uh, the ledger there, but uh, it was always a pleasure starting uh, uh, with my dad in the family business. And when I'd go in there, no one was in there, so I uh, kind of had the store to myself. But uh, it's funny because I've tried that with my kids now, and, and uh, that doesn't go over very well. Brett became the next generation owner after his dad, and the competition, well, it's stiffer than ever. They have a Kroger right next door to them, a Walmart four miles down the road, and of course, there's the internet. It's been tough going for this family business, but Brett has gone all in to try to survive, taking out a bank loan. And the loan, he used the proceeds to try and bring in restaurants, gyms, post offices, and pharmacies into his store, make it a one-stop shop for his patrons. Well, our interns asked Brett, does this big, outstanding bank loan make it hard to sleep at night? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough, um, but... uh, we were kind of in a put-up-or-shut-up um, situation in Hillsdale due to our competition, um, due to the markets. Uh, we had to make an investment, and um, we we really believe in our people. We believe in our community. We believe in our employees, and uh, especially when you're a Hillsdale kid, you live up in your hometown, and, you know, you, you take pride in that investment and what you can do in the community. The toughest part right now is uh, – is about the third of the month <laughs> when uh, when that payment comes due. It, it's uh, it's extremely difficult right now as we continue to grow our business and try to um, you know forge towards more profitability. Uh, but it's something that I love to do, especially when you got a family behind you, seventy six years of tradition. Um, you know, quitting was not an option. We uh, we want to grow our business, continue to grow it into a fifth generation. Most people walking into Brett's stores probably think, this guy's got two stores and he's got all these restaurants, gyms, and pharmacies in them. He's got to be pretty wealthy, right? And yet, to hear him ta- and yet to hear him talk about being nervous about whether he'll be able to pay his bank loan each month, it's pretty remarkable and, we be- and would be surprising to most folks. Here's Brett on this point. Yeah, I, I think it's a big misconception, um, uh, obviously, over the years, I think my family is the, the supermarket industry in Hillsdale, Michigan, has uh, treated us very, very well. Um, 
but you know competition is really uh tightened up what was already a tight margin business and uh you know we we even at hillsdale we haven't got ourselves to profitability yet um but we're not we're not giving up and uh it is it's stressful times and um but again i I wouldn't have made this commitment without the relationships we have with our community with our customers uh with hillsdale college has been just a tremendous supporter of our business over the years and um you know i have a lot of faith um a lot of faith that we're going to be fine and we're going to drive on and we're going to be profitable and and we're going to make an even bigger mark on the community and you can hear the pain in his voice i mean you can just hear it and yet the resilience too brett mentioned his low profit margin and so we asked him what it was yeah, the supermarket business has always been known as one of the lowest or tightest margin industries out there. Um, it's pennies on the dollar. Um, at the end of the day, if you could make one and a half, two percent, um, you're doing a good you're doing a good job. Um, uh, it's and those margins are just. My goal is to to run a business that makes you know somewhere between two and a half to three percent profitability. And my ultimate goal is invest that money back into the 401k and retirement plans of my associates and invest that back into our community. Um, because, uh, without our community and our associates, we're, you know, we won't reach year number 77 of our family business. A goal of making 2.5 to 3 cents out of every dollar a customer spends. That sounds just crazy. But it's also a free enterprise at work, folks, and what's driven all of our family's food costs much lower. Walmart, for example, saves the average family $2,500 a year by squeezing costs out of the system. And Brett's trying to do the same thing to compete, compete for your business and compete for customers. Brett continued. It's probably kind of alarming for most folks out there that deal with double-digit gross profits but when you consider um the utility costs the insurance costs all those factors uh then of course your labor and i'm so blessed to have such a phenomenal staff at both of our stores and you know we my ultimate goal is to be able to pay them even more but i try to take care of them they, they've taken care of my family for many many years and uh take care of our customers and uh i i take a lot of pride in trying to offer a fair wage to our to our associates and ultimately I want to pay him pay him even more and be in a position where we can contribute to the community at an even higher pace. We asked Brett, like we ask a lot of small business owners, if the proposed tax cut were to go down from the current thirty nine percent to fifteen percent, would it help his business and his employees? Yes. Um we uh we actually are trying to uh we met with all our associates earlier this year, and our ultimate goal is to grow our company to $25 million in sales this year. And the $25 million target was not really our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal was to get to that $25 million, but along the way be able to contribute more to our associates and contribute more uh, to our community. So, you know, any relief on, in taxes, especially with our tight margins, would be so beneficial and uh um, you know, we, we just want to reinvest that back into what we are, and that's our hometown of Hudson and Hillsdale. 
And you can hear it in this small business owner's voice. And by the way, our interns from Hillsdale and our team here will continue to talk to small business owners across this country because they're still hurting. They're still hurting, and you can hear it. Small business owners, by the way, in a poll revealed on Job Creators Network's website, while 75% of them agreed that high taxes and tax complexity threaten their businesses. And again, imagine if you're working on margins of 3 and 4 and 5% and taxes are in the mid-30s as opposed to 15 to 20, that's the difference between survival or not. 60% believe, by the way, that the current tax plan will have a positive effect on their business and their hiring. And this is what we like to do. Find out what small business owners are thinking, what they're talking about. Voices of Main Street, brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network. Go to defendmainstreet.org to learn more about what Job Creators Network does to defend small business owners around this great country. This is Our American Stories, Small Business Owners Stories. We do them all the time. Our American Stories, and just great job by our interns from Hillsdale. And you just heard the voice of small business, and my goodness. Well, there's nothing more to say. I just want to keep you posted on what's happening in this country. And this is a part of our Voices of Main Street project. And we'll be bringing you many more stories of what's happening on Main Street in this country in small businesses. Next up, well, the man's name is Carlos... Gazetua, and he's the owner of Sergio's, a small chain of Cuban restaurants in South Florida. And our own Alex Cortez brings us his story. My mom was really kind of my cornerstone. My mom and father got divorced when I was young, so I, I got to live in a, in a single-parent lifestyle. And you get to see, whenever you don't have a family unit together, there's definitely more challenges for the child. I think you see the reality of life a little bit faster in terms of the hard work that's necessary, that you appreciate what each member of your family contributes to you. Whenever you have two, again, two families, separate incomes, that definitely creates more, um, I would say less income for you as a child to experience some of the things that maybe other families have or have not. His mom had a restaurant, and their family had purchased it just so that Carlos's grandmother could get out of working at a factory and work there instead. Even though they didn't know a single thing about restaurants, this special grandmother fled Cuba and brought generations of her family's recipes with her. 
My grandmother saw when Fidel Castro took over that the opportunities were diminishing rapidly in Cuba. Many Cubans thought was going to be an opportunity for democracy and freedom um, when Bautista was forced out of power really turned into a nightmare for many Cubans in the island. They didn't see what they thought was going to happen. It wasn't freedom. In fact, it was turning more into a dictatorship. So um, at that time, my grandmother and, and many of the people in Cuba realized that they had to leave. Unfortunately, by that time, it was too late. And you basically, if you left that island, you could not take anything. Jewelry, cash, nothing. And the United States was always the dream for opportunity. It was the land of opportunity. And when they had the opportunity to come over, that's what they did. They came over to start from scratch because they knew that they were going to give the second generation, not just them, because that's, that's an important point, because many immigrants, when they come over here, they, they realize that it's not them that's going to benefit. It's going to be the second and the third generation that will benefit. And that's what they thought when they came over. And that third generation was Carlos, who at the age of eight will wake up at 5 a.m. every single morning to help open the restaurant at 6 a.m. before he went to school. He would open up and turn on the, the, the coffee machine. And if I had to count the cash, actually, in the morning to help service the, the first customers who always knew what kind of coffee they wanted. And at that time... It was also, believe it or not, was cigars. He would buy cigars in the morning as it was a very uh, Cuban uh, population and people didn't know much about cigarettes and cigars. They would buy that in the morning for the day and they would get their breakfast or eggs or ham. And that's kind of what we were, we were involved with was opening up. And uh, it was definitely an experience because as a kid, you're so young that the last thing you want to do is go to uh, work before your school. But it was definitely a, a lesson that stayed with me to remember how hard life could be. Unfortunately, not not many people get to see the experience of working in a small business and seeing how hard it is before going to school. My favorite description of being an entrepreneur is that you do get to make your own hours, but you also get to work all of the hours. I then spoke with Carlos about the topic of the day. What would the proposed tax cut to 15% mean for Sergio's restaurants and its employees. But I first asked him, what's the tax rate he's paying now? Oh, us? I think close to 50%. Close to 50%, easily. 50? Isn't it 39.5 for the top individual rate? So how are you getting hit more? Because of cash flow. Most, Most people think, okay, small business. Okay, you're paying 39%. But every small business owner will tell you, particularly any business that has a lot of... um, business or volume coming in for inventory and purposes, they can't pull out all the cash. So what you got to do is pay pre-estimated taxes every quarter. That kills many small businesses to, to invest because you're paying taxes in, in quarterly. Okay. But then also you got to keep a certain amount of money in your business just in case something happens. So when you really think about it, after paying um, federal income tax, all those taxes I told you, affordable care act tax, professional taxes, tangible taxes, payroll tax, sales tax, annual corporate fee tax, all these expenses. Small businesses have to keep money in their business for it to grow. And most restaurants don't even have that much money in the first place. Their average profit margin is only 5%. So for every dollar a customer spends, 
their profit is only five cents. Compare this to law offices with an average profit margin three times this, and accountants four times this. This low profit margin makes high taxes all the more devastating. I then asked Carlos if he's estimated how much the tax cut would return to his business. I haven't really calculated because, you know, with the political realm these days, they say something, but is it really going to happen? Many small business owners say, can't even think about it until it really does because it's so uncertain in the political arena right now that you kind of just are waiting, waiting to see and try not to hold your breath. Even though Carlos hasn't calculated the exact amount yet, he said it would be the difference between night and day for the growth of his business. And so I asked him how would the business spend its own money that it would be allowed to keep more of. For us, as you grow a business, you have to focus on infrastructure first. You don't just grow without focusing on infrastructure. So the first thing, if we have more uh, money coming in, is, is building. For us, it would be, for example, regional directors, uh, which are high-paying jobs, right, to take over and maybe and have corporate chefs for our restaurants. So as you grow, those people will support our current restaurants and then develop the new restaurants as well. So those kind of positions is what we're looking for. It gives a, It's actually a better-paying job, gives more education and mentorship, so they can be the trainers to mentor the next restaurants and the next field of people that you're hiring to give those opportunities to. And it's the best way of actually fielding, growing from within, fielding your people, training them and developing them and giving them the opportunity to succeed. And that's what's great. That's what's the most successful part of our business. I think the, the thing that we enjoy the most is seeing someone start maybe as a server or a busboy, server, trainer, manager, GM, and now from a GM maybe to a regional director or director of operations. And you see that growth. They actually believe that the American dream is possible. They've seen that hard work pays off. It's very frustrating. I've heard from a lot of employees and from a lot of people that are in different um, small businesses that many of their employees feel that they're stagnant, that their small business can't grow, therefore they don't get the opportunities, right? Because they don't they not have access to the capital to grow their business, but they view the business they work at as their own business, as their opportunity to grow and make more money. And so the that spirit from those employees, which are great, employees are your number one asset to have, you have to keep nurturing that and you got to keep growing that. And opportunities, when people see that in your culture, in your organization, they want to be the next one. And it's very frustrating for business owners when you can't always provide that. This tax cut would help him provide more of those opportunities for those who need it the most and deserve it. A cook that came to our organization from another restaurant and helped us open up a restaurant when he came first in and his passion, desire, you could tell he was a go-getter. Leaving the kitchen, kind of keeping the shift and the food hot at the right timing. He developed into eventually assistant manager, and then now he's running our highest grocery store as a GM, and he'll probably be promoted in the future as our regional manager. So seeing that has been amazing. This team member went from making $8 an hour to $75,000 a year. We could use more of that in this country. And great job as always, Alex. And, and this is an important 
segment for us. We love to do these things. And again, uh, go to Job Creators Network. Uh, join if you're a small business owner. Uh, they defend your interests and they defend what you're all about and want to protect you and help you grow your businesses. And go to defendmainstreet.org to learn more. And this is our Voices of Main Street project. We love doing it. And our Hillsdale interns will be out and about for the next uh, few months doing this all around the Midwest, uh, the Southeast. And we'll bring you those stories of small business owners, some struggling, some waiting. And you heard it right there from our latest. And Carlos Gazetua, the owner of Sergio, is a small chain of Cuban restaurants in South Florida. Boy, he's just waiting for some relief. 50%, he said, when you add it all up. And again, he was talking about those things like prepaying your quarterly taxes. Again, if you don't own a business, you don't know what that's like and how much you got to put there. And it has nothing to do with what you earn this year. They do it on what you earn last year. So if you're having a slow year this year, you got to pay based on last year's taxes. It's crazy. And so we're fighting for the little guy. We're fighting for Main Street here on Our American Stories because, well, small business owners are the lifeblood of this great country. 